The Music Business Worldwide podcast is supported by Volley Music, a leading financial management platform for the music industry. Volley enables you to track expenses, approve invoices, and make payments 24-7, 365 days a year. For your free trial, head to volleymusic.com. That's V-O-L-Y music.com. Hello and welcome to the Music Business Worldwide podcast supported by Volley Music. My name is Tim Ingham, the founder of Music Business Worldwide, and joining me on this podcast is Lisa Yang. Lisa is Managing Director of Media and Internet at Goldman Sachs Global Investment Research. As such, she keeps a very close eye on the music business and is the lead analyst on Goldman's hugely influential Music in the Air paper, a new and updated version of which is released every 12 months. The latest iteration of Music in the Air was released in June this year and contained amongst its 72 pages financial and data analysis of all corners of the modern music business. It also contained headline forecasts, including that the global recorded music industry will be generating over $550 billion a year by 2030 from some 1.2 billion paying streaming subscribers worldwide. On this podcast, I ask Lisa about her team's latest forecasts in Music in the Air, while picking her brains on other conclusions from the report, and more generally about how the global music industry is going to change in the decade ahead of us. Lisa Yang, welcome to the Music Business Worldwide podcast. Music in the Air has become this established flagship publication for the business. Everyone reads it. Obviously, we cover it. Many others cover it. When and why did you and your team at Goldman Sachs highlight music rights specifically as interesting enough for this kind of coverage in the first place? I've been covering the European media and internet sector at Goldman for nearly 50 years. And it's true that at the time when we started to look into the music industry around 2013, 2014, the only stock in my coverage with exposure to music was Vivendi. There's only one stock. And at the time, Vivendi owned 100% of universal music. So it's true that, you know, spending months working on the niche industry, because one of my stocks had, you know, some exposure to it was a top sell. But actually what's triggered, I think, why we started to basically look at uh, this industry was when Vivendi began to sell telecom assets and was transitioning into a media company. And that just really started to put UMG to the spotlight. And suddenly... Universal became probably one of the most important contributors to Vivendi revenue and profits. So we started to dig a lot deeper into the music industry. At the time, it was beginning to show signs of inflection thanks to the rise of music streaming services, obviously like Spotify. And it just really felt undervalued for a business that was transitioning to a subscription business with recurring you know, cash flow and high profitability. At the time, streaming was still in its infancy. I think you know, streaming was about probably 20% of the total recorded music revenue in 2015, only 50 million users. But it just felt like you know, streaming had enormous growth potential. And all the stars, I think, were aligning at the time, namely the growth of mobile connectivity, the proliferation of streaming services, but like tech giants. So we started to see Apple launching its music service in 2014, then Amazon Music. You also had the population of Gen Z and millennials being digital natives by nature and more focused on experience and convenience as opposed to ownership. And obviously that made them the ideal 
audience for music streaming. And then you also had tied to government regulations against piracy, notably in China and some other emerging markets. So I think there's just been a combination of things happening. And I've just been fascinated by how this industry, which has been left for almost dead by investors after 15 years of decline due to Paris and Burnley, and how this industry was about to experience a new wave of growth that would be dramatically larger than you know during its previous uh, tech cycles. So having spent weekends, I think, for a number of months working on the subject, and by the way, I was amazed at how little information we could find on the industry. Like, obviously, I'm a research analyst, so I really care about numbers, about quantifying things, about addressable market. It was just so difficult to find any sort of information and public data, I think, on the industry. So I think that increased my interest even more, I think, for the topic. And my objective was really how can I put, you know, objective quantifiable figures on the industry where basically nobody with nothing was at the time available. And I think with the strong support of my bosses at the time were, you know, particularly interested in the topic and managed to get my global colleagues on board where the time were covering Sony or Pandora Apple. We then released our first music and in the air report in 2016. It was launched as a double album, part one, laid our thesis of a doubling of the music market to over $100 billion by 2030. With interestingly, conclusion was the record labels would be the key beneficiaries. And then we had a, a part two, which sort of presented the risk associated to our thesis. And we were really surprised when we first published this, um, this report about the level of interest we got from investors, from music companies. We got a lot more interest than we thought, especially given the time, there were not a lot of music stocks, as you can imagine, you could buy directly. And Spotify, Tantum Music, Warner Music, Universal Music, or Hypnosis only became public years after. So the fact that you know, a lot of people were interested got us to engage with a lot of investors, but also a lot of music companies. And then all these companies eventually became public. I think that's the reason why you know, we have continued to publish on the subject. And to be honest, it is one of the most exciting, I think, areas uh, with my coverage. And I cover today about 30 stocks. So yeah, I think that's why I think we have uh, continued to publish this sort of annual update to really look at the key debates in the industry, but also help us to keep refining our music industry forecast. Well, I certainly think you've added to greatly to the information around the industry on top of your forecast, just pulling together all of that data is incredibly interesting and insightful to many of us who observe the business. But if you start in 2016, I'll take us all the way up to date because I think your latest Music in the Air came out sort of at the top of this summer. I've got lots of questions to ask you about that, to dig in some of the ideas, conclusions and observations. But one of the most talked about forecasts in the report, and I guess this kind of does go back to previous reports, is the level of subscribers, the volume of paying music streaming subscribers that will be signed up to platforms globally by 2030. That was a magic date you mentioned earlier, the 2030 forecast. The latest report suggests this will be at 1.2 billion globally. What needs to happen to get the industry to that point, considering current estimates of global subscribers? I think they're around somewhere between 600, 660, 670 million. So how do we get from where we are today to basically double it to the 1.2 in 2030, what will be the key drivers in your opinion? Sure. I think for many years we've been called as probably bullish in terms of uh, predicting that we will get to over a billion subscribers. And I think one interesting observation is that since we've been publishing our annual Music in the Air update since 2016, every single year 
the number of subscribers published by IFPI had beaten our expectations every single year. Even in 2022, with the war, the macro slowdown, the cost of living crisis, the number of paid subscribers exceed our expectations only by 3 million, but it was still you know, better than what we were uh, forecasting. So as you said, our projection for 2030 has been around you know, 1.2 billion for a number of years now. And I think given the recent growth trajectory in any type of growth in, of macro environment, I think that gives us you know, a lot of confidence that we're going to get there. So I think if you dig into basically the way we construct our forecast, you know, really look at bottom, really conduct a bottom-up analysis. You know, we try to forecast penetration, subscriber levels, and output by market, and then also look at top-down approach. Okay, what does that look like at the global basis in terms of penetration? And we do look at uh, penetration of smartphone owners. So if you look at the next few years, we do expect the industry will add about seventy to eighty million new subscriber additions every year, which is a bit of a slowdown compared to the 80 to 9 million net that we, we saw in recent years. But then what's changing is the mix. So we do expect a growing proportion of these net ads to come from emerging markets rather than as opposed to developed markets. I think roughly the speed would be 60% EM and 40% DM. Whereas, for instance, in 2019, it was the opposite, it was 40-60. And in 2022, I think we probably reached a landmark of the split between EM and DM, reaching 50-50, I think, for the first time. So what does this mean? I think the 1.2 billion implies the global penetration will increase from about 13% today to 20%. We have developed markets going from 40% today to probably about 55-60%. But obviously, EM today, we think, is trimming its only in its infancy. I think the penetration of paid subscription is only around 6%, and we have that growing to 12% over time. If you think about it, it's still very low, even for, if you think about the global penetration at 20%, given the great user experience and value for customers being provided by these music streaming platforms, and also compared to the penetration of video streaming, for instance, or video games, we actually think these forecasts can still prove to be conservative. So I think the big question from here and how to get to 1.2 billion is, Firstly, when do we get to saturation in those more mature markets? Because even if today there are probably about half of the new subscriber addition in value terms, they're probably still at 70%. It represents 70% of the total streaming recorded, so streaming revenue. And we see secondly is how quickly emerging markets would grow and what level of penetration they would end up over time. And if I just take these two points one by one, I think if you think about Developed markets, obviously, UK, US, Australia, I mean, penetration growth will slow as the markets mature. But then we use the Nordic markets as a roadmap. And in the Nordics, we think today we're already at 55, 60%. There's no reason why over time the US and other developed markets wouldn't catch up with the Nordics. Just to clarify, someone's listening because I think I'm following you. You're saying that 50 to 60% of the possible addressable market of the population are smartphone users. Of smartphone users, thank you. So in the Nordics, yeah. we're at about 60%, and you think well, hopefully yes. we could get there in, in other developed, so-called developed markets. Exactly. So I think in all the developed markets, you're probably around 40% today. So there are a lot of numbers here, but we think that 40 will probably get to sort of you know, 55, 60% over time and catch up with the, the Nordics. And I think directionally, we still see a long revenue for growth. I think there are some consumer studies which shows interest at 70% plus, for pay streaming, and I think it's just a question of time. You think about 
cable TV, for instance, you know, it's still rolled out for over 30 years. So it doesn't mean that getting the new customers to join the developed markets can be easy, but we think we're going to get there. And there's a big opportunity, for instance, to convert, for instance, all the demographics where penetration today is much lower than younger demos. And also you have a natural increase in penetration over time as the Gen Z and millennials who have a Spotify subscription today, they will probably keep it in after 20 years' time. So that's how we see basically streaming penetration progressing in, in developed markets. And then in emerging markets, we think penetration today, again, of smartphone owners is probably around mid-single digit. We use, in this case, China as a roadmap. We think you know, China is a great example of how music streaming penetration has progressed over time. It was at around 4% in 2019. And it has more than tripled since then. So I think today we're about 13%. So forecast for the whole of EM, you have basically a penetration reaching 12% by 2030. We think there's no reason why they wouldn't over time catch up with uh, with China. That makes sense. So I guess if it's mid-single digits today, that's effectively doubling in that time frame in those. Exactly. So we've mentioned a lot about emerging markets. I mean, just briefly, if you could pick one emerging territory that you think is going to be particularly commercially game-changing for the music business in the next, I don't know, seven to 10 years, which would you pick and what makes it particularly interesting? Sure. I think I'd probably point to India as a market where I think we're still very much scratching the surface in terms of organization and where I see significant growth potential over time. I mean, firstly, from a macro standpoint, a demographic standpoint, this is not a a market that could be ignored. For instance, I think this year, India overtook China as the most populated country in the world with over 1.4 billion people. And interestingly, unlike many other countries, its workforce is also young and expanding, whereas like in a market like China, population is aging and probably even shrinking. From a macro standpoint, it's also now the fifth largest economy in the world. It has recently overtaken the UK. And it has also been one of the fastest growing major economies in the world in the past two decades. It has grown probably at 6 6.5% per year for the last two decades. And even in 2022, when the world was slowing down, I think India still displayed around 6.7% of GDP growth. And the economies forecast about 7% annual GDP growth for the next decade. So in that context, the stream market is still infancy, especially when it comes to music subscriptions. If you think of the Indian market and the stream market in particular, nearly 80% of stream revenue comes from ad-supported it's actually the opposite in all the other regions. In the other regions, it's like 80, 85% from subscription and 15% from advertising. So we think there's already a massive pool of ad-funded users. We think about probably more than 200 million. It's already the third largest market for ad-supported revenue in the world. That's the US and China. So there's a massive pool of ad-funded users you can tap into and convert them into paid users over time. I know that the pace of conversion has rather been disappointing, I think, in recent years. And if anything, we have trimmed our forecast for paid subscribers in India. I think it was probably one of the only countries where we trimmed our forecast. But we just do think all the factors are combined to make it, again, one of the potential, one of the biggest contributors to future growth. And in 2022, interestingly, when you look at the IFPI data, it was, I think, the fastest growing market, music market amongst the top 20, I think it was up like 48%. And even Spotify is now beginning to talk about massive growth in the user base, which I think does tell us, you know, they're also beginning to convert them into, into paying users. 
And talking of Spotify and paid users, one of the things in the latest music in the air is your forecasts. They bake in or they're contingent on the idea that headline streaming subscription prices, i.e. what the consumers are paying around the world, will rise by an average of 3% per year in those established markets like the US over the next half decade. We've obviously just seen Spotify finally put up its flagship individual premium tier price in 53-odd markets, but including the US by 10%. So how confident are you that Spotify and other leading streaming services will now keep on putting their prices prices up regularly enough to meet that 3% up per year average that you're looking for in your forecast? Sure. I mean, firstly, we're very encouraged by the recent announcement by Spotify. And as you said, finally, I do think you know, this is not just a one-off and there will be opportunities to raise prices further over the foreseeable future. Obviously, it's always difficult to predict the cadence of these things. So that's why for simplicity, we have baked in about 3% price increase per year in developed markets, which obviously in reality means you get probably 10% increase every three years. And we haven't actually baked in any price increase in EMs, despite the fact that our conversation with industry players suggests that Chinese streaming services will also be looking to raise prices. So why do we think we're at a sort of tipping point when it comes to music pricing and music monetization in general? is firstly, I think the simple observation, the starting point is music is still massively undermonetized. And whether the metric you're looking at, whether it's consumer spend on music, which is probably still 40% lower today than at the end of the 1990s, whether it's about your subscription ARPU, so that's your revenue per paid user that has probably fallen 40% since 2016, or whether you look at your revenue per audio stream, which has also fallen 20% in the last five years. There's no reason why music streaming services monetization will continue to be disconnected with the growth in consumption. So in terms of like how the future may look like, we'd like to look at the other industries in parallel. So for instance, the video streaming industry is a great example in terms of how things could pan out for the music industry. And obviously it's more mature. We think it's probably 10 years ahead of uh, music streaming when it comes to penetration. And if you look at that industry, major streaming services have raised their prices effectively by 10% every two to three years. So even after recently taking into account the, the Spotify price increase, the standard plan of Spotify is still 45% cheaper than Netflix today. So how is that going to happen? Obviously, a lot of that will depend on what will be the key priorities of the largest DSPs, who obviously set the retail prices and of the record labels who could to some extent, influence that, although they don't dictate, obviously, the retail prices. And I do think that the last decade, all the strategies put in place were to basically chase volume growth. And volume growth was, at the time, you know, easier to get. That's why, like, why would you necessarily care about monetizing users? But now growth is indeed becoming harder to get, especially in uh, some of those developed markets as you're approaching and exceeding 40% penetration. So I do think at some point, you start to think a lot more deeply about monetization especially at the time of high inflation. So if a Spotify or an Apple or an Amazon want to better monetize their users, that becomes their key focus. And they could, again, like change the marketing strategy and the product innovation strategy. They will be able to raise prices. But I think in the report, we obviously touch about straight headline price increase, but we think there's you know, an opportunity to also better segment audiences to increase monetization and catch the super fans, for example, so it's not just about just raising, simply raising prices. 
you mentioned superfans. We should definitely talk about that. In the latest report, you model out a number of potential scenarios where effectively streaming services can, for want of a better phrase, super serve super fans, and the super fans would pay more for it. And probably important to point out to those who have a professional interest in your work that you're modeling out of what super fans may end up paying extra on top of their current rate isn't actually factored in your sort of standard forecast. It's extra, it's additive. In the report, I've got it, just this phrase in front of me, you say, quote, we believe that there is an opportunity for the music industry to improve monetization through a premium segmentation of their user base, close quote. I mean, it's an idea that's being talked about in many offices around the world right now. What do you think a more extensive streaming offering for this premium section of superfans might end up looking like? What do you think superfans might end up paying more for? Sure. I I think, you know, firstly, we do think there is a greater propensity from super fans to to pay a lot more. I think, you know, Universal Music have often cited, you know, consumer research showing that, you know, 30% of their artist fans actually could be considered super fans. And the super fans used to be paying three times more in the download area. So you can see how incremental and significant, I think, this uh, revenue opportunity could represent. And I think we have probably assumed it could be could add about $4 billion, I think, to the industry. That's about nearly more than 25% uplift to our current streaming forecast. In terms of how it may look like, I think, again, we tend to look at sort of what's been done in the music industry and in sort of adjacent of, you know, entertainment industries as well. I think if you look at most of the new plans that have been introduced over the last decade, Again, the aim was mainly to acquire new customers, even at lower price points. So these plans have typically been dilutive. Think about the student plans or the family plans or the Amazon Music Economy plan. So far, there have only been a few attempts to try to charge a premium for extra features. So I do think there could be new packages that could come out in the next few quarters or years that could include additional functionality like Hi-Fi, for instance, which today, for instance, is still offered at no extra cost by Apple Music. It could be offering additional content at audiobooks, like you usually pay for audiobooks, but so far still offered at no additional cost on Spotify. It could also be charging for maybe more exclusive content or pre-releases, for instance. But I think more broadly, I think what we're the industry should be you know, trying to solve for is how they can more better leverage the entire artist-fan relationship. And it could include, again, access to pre-release songs, VIP ticketing, merchandising, virtual concerts, etc. So really try to monetize every single touch point, I think, between an artist and, and its fan. So I think in terms of how it could look like, it's worth pointing out there's been some interesting initiatives coming out of Asia. Actually, it's interesting because Japan has been very well known for monetizing its super fan base. And for decades, probably, the record companies have partnered with the artist management companies to turn, you know, a simple record sale into full merchandising experience and that could connect, you know, artists with their fans. So as an example, there have been various tactics to boost CD sales and you include as part of your CD so some voting cards, some tickets to be able to take part in handshake events with your artists, access to special concerts and exclusive pictures. And all of that basically just leads fans to buy more CDs. And there was, I remember we recorded one of the reported extreme example where you had a fan who spent $300,000 buying basically the multiple copies of the CD to show his support to one of these artists. Obviously, that's very, very extreme, but that's just a, an example of how you can better monetize, I think, some of the super fans. I think more recently, also saw, I think, an interesting sort of initiative coming out of South Korea. So 
Hive, they launched a super fan platform called Weverse, I think a couple of years ago. I think the last time I checked, they ended with just over 8 million monthly active users. But simply, it's a platform that hosts a variety of free and paid content for its artists, such as BTS. It has like educational entertainment videos. It has, you know, provides you with regular updates, day-to-day updates from the artists themselves. And also has a platform to sell merchandise. So I think, again, that's also an example of how some players, you know, in Asia have been able to better monetize that sort of, you know, artist fan relationship. So I'm going to ask you to, I think what Hybe doing with Weverse, really interesting. You've got all the SM Entertainment artists. They just managed to strike a deal whereby they got all of those. So I definitely think you're on something with us keeping an eye on that. In terms of looking into your crystal ball, so I've talked about what might super the, the product offering for super fans look like. Also in music in the air, unsurprisingly, in the latest report, you delve quite a lot into potential alternative streaming royalty models. So how royalties actually get paid out to artists particularly artists but also songwriters from the platforms in the years ahead you actually say in the report that a more sophisticated streaming payment model is quote necessary to replace what we know is pro rata i'm not going to eat up time here explaining what pro rata is but i'm sure most people listening to this will understand having looked at the various options and with all of this discussion around quote unquote artist centric coming particularly from universal discussions around quote unquote user centric coming elsewhere or fan powered coming from soundcloud etc where do you think we'll ultimately end up what will the model be or will it be many models what's your thinking on this yeah, I think, you know, it's sort of hard to tell, but I think, you know, one thing is clear is that the model has to change because it just has too many flows. Uh, this model, this program time model was probably designed at a time where the industry was still in decline, where the you know, playlists didn't have as much uh, sort of importance in terms of like driving sort of the user consumption. And I think it's pretty clear that you need a model that could better align monetization and consumption and also pay out with the value that's actually been generated by a song or an artist. I can't think of any other industry in entertainment that values each piece of content the same, which is effectively still the case here. And I think with the rise of the AI, the risk is that this model could basically lead to even greater oversupply. I think it gets things even more complicated with more fraud and this incentives being driven by quantity over quality. So I do think there's obviously we're hearing a lot about what's being discussed, I think, between the majors and some select DSPs. I do think it will take time because, as you know, getting all the majors to agree on the model takes time. I think getting the majors to agree with the DSPs takes even longer. And you can see how lengthy the negotiations have been with the likes of TikTok or Spotify. So it is a multi-year process. Well, uh, the one thing I think that will probably come out in the short term is a way to eliminate fraud. And I think, you know, music business worldwide has uh, written a lot about this. I think there are many studies that shows there's probably three, four, five, or even up to 10%, I think, of streams which are considered as fraudulent. So it's uh, clear that everyone in the industry is aligned to tackle fraud, and that could easily redistribute 5 to 10% of recorded music revenue back to the real artist. So I think that's probably the first step in terms of aligning monetization with consumption. And then in terms of like how then the content royalty pool gets reallocated between the different majors, the different between the majors and independents or between you know the DRA artists, that will take multiple years. 
I do think eventually we'll move towards like, you know, UMG's sort of artist-centric model, whatever this actually phonically means today. But I think the principle is probably the same. And I think everyone will agree over time, over a model. Allow me to get slightly in the weeds on something in the report. This is about the declining value per stream of royalty payments from streaming services, which kind of fits with the pro rata discussion itself. But you put together some charts on the revenue per streaming hour on these services. So if a listener is listening for an hour and they're cramming in X number of tracks, how does that look from one service to another service? It's especially relevant because as you show the number of total streaming hours on Spotify, if you think about the whole audience on Spotify globally, more than quadrupled between 2015 and 2021. So do you expect and or encourage the music business to think more in terms of revenue per streaming hour, which I'm on shaky ground here, but I do think that's something that I've seen in the video streaming industry more commonly. Do you expect the music business to think more in terms of revenue per streaming hour as we move forward? Sure. I think, you know, firstly, in the report, I think we were just trying to find ways to show and quantify how demonetized music currently is. And that's why we look at revenue per stream hour, because I think that was a good way to compare the music industry with other forms of entertainment, such as SVOD. But I think you're raising a, a very interesting question. And that question is obviously whether the current revenue share model between the DSPs and the record labels is still basically valid and does that best align the interest and is that the best model to drive this improving monetization we sort of talked about for the for the entire music industry? Again, I think there's a divergence of opinions in the industry currently, and I'm not sure whether all parties will necessarily or ever agree to a potential change because I do think you need everyone to sort of be aligned on this. And for instance, the recent earnings call, I think Universal was pretty clear that they still think rest share is the best model and best aligned interests. And therefore, they, they would rule out, you know, a shift to a sort of fixed per stream rate. Although it's not an incentive, they are sort of already paid on the per play rate already. So but I do expect there's going to be debate, ongoing dialogue on this. And that's been the case, I think, since the advent of streaming, where you had constant demand from the streaming services to improve the royalty rates paid to the labels. Because if you think about it, the content cost for someone like Spotify is 65%. So they've been around since probably 2006-2007 and they're still not profitable, although their free cash flow is positive. So that constant search for better unique economics and better gross margins have led to certain DSPs to try to diversify their services away from just music in order to, again, improve their gross margin. And I do think to some extent they have been using their algorithms to push low royalty content to users, again, in order to improve the economy. So the question is, like, if you were to switch shift to a fixed rate that is indexed to maybe inflation plus, could potentially help solve these issues without giving a better forward visibility when it comes to future revenue for the labels, and at the same time, better incentivize the DSPs to raise price, and if they raise price more aggressively, they will be in turn generating better gross margin. I think this is clearly a valid reflection for sort of the industry to have. I think you're on the per streaming rate, just to add to that, the reason I was kind of really happy to see you just delve into the, and look at the idea of value per streaming hour, effectively value per stream, that idea. When an artist is coming up, there's a lot of confusion and grievance caused these days because they ask their manager or their label, how much do I get for a million streams? And no one can really tell them because it 
changes day to day, year on year, etc. So there is certainly an argument for there being more clarity if we went down that route. But there is also arguments that it complicates other aspects of the industry. I appreciate. So let's talk about Spotify particularly because I know it's a company that you look at closely. They lost a little bit of global music subscriber market share, according to your report last year. So this year's report showed that they lost a bit of market share last year. However, considering Spotify's absence in China in particular, it continues to perform strongly as the world's market leader. So the market share that it's losing isn't particularly material. Can it maintain its market share leadership position globally in the years ahead? That's the big question. Can Spotify continue to be the world's largest music streaming subscription platform as the competition hots up and as the you mentioned the nature of the emerging markets and developed markets as the picture of the world changes? Sure. I mean, I think that's a question that Bess has been asking for years, especially since Spotify is uh, probably the most important independent music streaming, pure play, and compete against services that are part of larger tech conglomerates that obviously are deep-pocketed and, and don't necessarily think about music necessarily as the center of their profit pool. And despite that, despite the proliferation of new services, etc., I mean, what you find is that, you know, outside of China, if you look at the share of Spotify, expense and music, it has been actually broadly stable since 2017 at around sort of 41 42%. And that shows, again, this platform that is going to continue to remain dominant. And that's what we project. You know, we actually, extensive music forecast its share to decline only marginally to about 39% over time. But I think if Spotify were at risk of losing its leadership, it probably would have done so already. So that's why we feel you know, very, very confident about this projection. And also, if you look at the past couple of quarters, Spotify has actually performed really well. The number of paid users have actually performed expectations over the last several quarters. So I think that there's obviously incredible opportunity emerging markets like India, for instance. So that's why I think yeah, they, they can continue to maintain their leadership. I think outside of Spotify, I think what's interesting is really do think YouTube music has been taking the most share amongst the major DSPs. And we do think YouTube music will probably become the second largest DSPs by 2030 overtaking Apple music. And then you're probably going to see a consolidation amongst the long tail, because I think there's still probably 200 different streaming services in the world. So that will probably consolidate. So their share will probably decline. And I think the big question mark is how successful TikTok music is going to be. Only recently launched or relaunched another TikTok music brand. I do think it's a differentiated offering versus like what you can find already with Spotify, Apple Music has a lot more sort of social sort of element in the in the service. So it's going to be interesting like how much growth uh, TikTok music could attract over time. I look forward to seeing an illustration of what that impact has been, certainly over TikTok Music's first, where well, I think they're launching around the end of summer in various territories. So I'm sure that will all crop up in the Music in the Air report next year. But for now, I just want to ask you generally, because I was looking at some of Goldman Sachs's coverage of various stocks and there's, if we look at Universal, Warner, I believe, I think just upgraded Sony, I saw. But generally speaking, it's fair to say that Goldman Sachs is, I used the word bullish earlier. I'm going to use the word confident, but you're confident in the future for music rights and their worth. I guess using a slightly controversial term, premium music rights and their worth. How confident are you of that over the next decade, let's say, just generally speaking, and why? What is driving your confidence in these rights and these companies? Yeah, sure. I mean, I do think the industry still have a lot of structural growth drivers. And that's what I like about the music industry is that I still think it's probably 
one of the most demonetized form of content. And that's why, you know, it will enable the industry to continue to grow in any sort of type of macro environment. And I think the last couple of years with COVID, with the war and time of like high inflation, the industry has continued to prove really, really resilient. But obviously, the mix of growth will be changing. I do think we're going to enter a phase of growth, which probably is going to be healthier because it's going to be more broad-based. It's not just going to rely on streaming. What you see as well, if physical sales have stopped declining, vinyls continue to grow, you get tremendous new opportunities from on the licensing side, especially as there's more money being put into those catalogs. I think a lot of those catalog owners will be thinking about better ways of monetizing their content. And I think you know, licensing and sync opportunities would be huge over time. I think the live music industry is still very vibrant. And that's obviously driving the growth of merchandising revenue for the industry. And I still think we're at the very early stage of monetizing or better monetizing those adjacent platforms such as social media, gaming, the metaverse. If you think about it, like music is used everywhere, it's consumed everywhere. So there must be a way to sort of better monetize that consumption. And I think we'll be getting there. And I think the recent deal announced by Warner Music and TikTok, again, is a one nice step towards that direction. So I think if you put all those things together, obviously streaming penetration continues to grow, growth in pricing, better monetization of, of emerging platforms, plus a number of other growth opportunities, publishing, merchandising, licensing, etc. I think that's going to help sustain sort of high simplicity growth rate for the industry for the, probably the next decade. Well, we as a business would be delighted if that is the case. I'm sure all of those companies that you are watching would be delighted if that is the case. I think you put forward a, a robust argument as for the factors as to why it will actually play out. Lisa Young, thank you very much for joining us on the Music Business Worldwide podcast. Thank you. Goodbye.